0: Right. are you into werewolves, mad scientists, and a little bit of witchcraft? Then stay tuned for an all-new episode of Watts Corner. We're riding this train straight into the sun! Woo! Tune in to a classic episode of Watts Corner on the Seltzer Kings Network. Available on all podcast platforms. All I'm saying, Gavin, is there is never, ever, ever been a movie based on the cricket pitch yes. the following podcast contains you can't say goddamn on the air don't worry nobody's listening anyway explicit language hello and welcome to the podcast that ask a simple question when you decided to tank the season so you could move the team to miami what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 405, just a bit outside. It's a what-the-hell movie night where we talk about 1989's Major League. Stay tuned. The What the Hell Were You Thinking podcast is brought to you by the Mawa Monsters, A League Softball, the hottest beer league softball in Mawa Township for at least the last six months. The Mahwah Monsters are undefeated in the greater Mawa Suffern-Hilburn intramurals and hands down the favorite to take the pennant in the North Jersey Southern New York League in 2023. So come out, come on out to RCNJ Field every Saturday and catch the hottest softball action this side of Ramapo. Opening night is May 13th and the Malwa Monsters face off against division rival Frank's Auto Bodies of Suffern in a rematch of last year's division championships. Every game in June is Mazzy the Monster night. Kids under 10 enter a drawing from Mazzy the Monster mascot plushie. The Mawa Monsters. It's only beer league softball, but we play like we think we're in the pros. Hello. You know us. We're a Major League Baseball team. But since we haven't won a pennant in over 30 years, nobody recognizes us, not even in our own hometown. That's why we carry the American Express card. No matter how far out of first we are, it's cool. You know, it keeps us from getting shut out at our favorite hotels and restaurant-type places. So you're looking for some big league club? Apply for that little green home-run heater. Look what it's done for us. People still don't recognize us, but... We're contenders now. The American Express card. Don't steal home without it. This might surprise some of you but I wasn't an athletic kid. You are a fat baby. No, I mean, yes, but no. I never played any sports in school. The closest I ever came to playing sports as a kid was a Sandlot softball team consisting of all the kids who lived in our housing project. The kids of the project would gather on long summer afternoons on the dirt field next to our project and play endless games on a scratched out diamond with improvised bases and a pitcher mound that was just an old hubcap. I'll never forget the memories I have of those days, approaching the plate, setting myself, waiting the pitcher to wind up and and deliver that long, slow, lazy lob in the direction of home, and of swinging my bat end. Because the only thing I was worse at than fielding, I was afraid of the ball, never caught it, was hitting. This is just because. Oh hell, I suck at sport. I mean, I'm not even a fan of sports, not as a kid nor an adult. I tried to watch football for a little while. I was an ironic fan of the Cleveland Browns, despite having never stepped foot in the city of Cleveland. But I liked the Browns because, you know, they sucked at it. Here was an entire professional football team that was as bad at sports as I was. I can respect that. But, you know, it didn't last. I got bored trying to watch the games, and frankly, being around people at bars who are way into sports is only slightly less annoying than having a face-to-face conversation with someone who's way into sports. But at least football had some action, you know, unlike baseball, which is less exciting to me than watching flies fuck. Which is why the irony of my briefly working as a photographer at Yankee Stadium was so extraordinary. And I hate the Yankees. Please, saying I hate the Yankees would imply I had any feelings about the Yankees at all, which I do not. So having a job where I got to see them every home game for free and make money while doing so was absolutely infuriating out there to everyone who gave a shit about sports. I mean, I even got to walk on the field and set the dugout a few times while working gigs. And yeah, I can respect the history behind what I was doing. The biggest feeling I had about the entire couple of months was... It's so boring. Yeah, I left the job not much long after I started. The boredom I could handle the hustle of trying to sell drunk Yankees fans tourist photos for 20 bucks that they could take on their phones for free was even worse than the baseball. But all that being said, I do love a good sports movie. They're heading this way. That smashing bolt of Irish lightning. Those fighting sons of old Notre Dame charging across the screen in a roaring blaze of triumph with Canute Rockne, the miracle man of football. The four horsemen riding again. They're all in it. Elmer Layden, Jim Crowley, Harry Stolderer, Rip Miller, Gus Doray, Hunk Anderson, Father Callahan, George Giff, the greatest football player of all time. No, not those kind of sports movies. I mean, the kind of sports movies where the team sucks and somehow goes on to win anyway. I'm talking about sports comedy, which brings me to this week's movie, 1989's Major League. Tom Behringer, Supernish Kirkstock. Use your imagination. Charlie Sheen. These things make me look ridiculous. Seeing's the most important thing, son. I don't think it's that important. Corbin Burnson And Bob Eucher. Heywood swings and crushes one towards South America. Major League. That ball wouldn't have been out of a lot of parks. Name one. Yellowstone. <laughs> Released in April of 1989 by Paramount Pictures, Major Ling tells the story of a professional baseball team that is uh, very not good. Their a longtime owner has just died, and his young, attractive trophy wife has inherited the team and has big plans for it. So let's dig into the backstory about the movie and the team the movie is about. There are a couple of things that you need to know before we talk about the movie. First, of course, is the 10th man of the movie. Cleveland! This is for you! Cleveland, Ohio has been a punchline for decades. Once a major industrial center and a key port for the steel industry by the late 1960s, the Cleve was on a slow decline. When the Cuyahoga River caught fire in 1969, which I should note was not the first nor the last time the river caught fire, it became a national story and was one of the starting points for a national reckoning about pollution leading to the Clean Water Act. That's a good thing, right? Yeah, but for some reason, poor Cleveland still gets shit on for the rivers catching fire, even today. When the Cuyahoga has actually been cleaned up. I mean, yeah, you got some mutant fish in the lower river, but a lot of work has been done. And also, even when Cleveland tries to be cool, it manages to step on its own dick. See the Cleveland balloon disaster we talked about in episode 396. Now, we got to talk about the 1980s Cleveland Indians. It's not the preferred nomenclature. Yeah, let's clear that up right now. In 2021, the Cleveland organization, after years of people pointing out that their name and their iconography were not exactly cool with Native Americans who thought of as kind of... Yeah, that's racist. Oh, that is racist. Finally changed their name to the Guardians, named after two iconic Art Deco statues on the Hope Memorial Bridge near Progressive Field in Cleveland. The statues, known as the Guardians of Traffic, became the team's namesake. The reaction to the change was uh, loved by the kind of people who found the racist imagery of the team racist, and loathed by the kind of people who, uh, you know, total shit. Two years later, the Fuhrer has largely settled down and the fans have embraced the new name. During this episode, I will try to refer the team by just Cleveland, but there will be references in the drops to the Indians because that was the name of the team when the movie was made. Speaking of the year the movie was made, it started production in 1988, Cleveland, was in a bit of a rough patch. Or, to put it another way... They stunk on ice. The team had not won a championship in 34 years when they had lost the World Series to the New York Giants. Just a reminder, fans, about Die Hard night coming up here at the stadium. Free admission to anyone who was actually alive the last time the Indians won a pennant. Nor had they placed higher than 5th in their division during the 1980s and were generally considered to be... One of the worst teams in baseball. And it's because the team was so bad that we have the movie Major League in the first place. Writer-director David Ward, a fan of the team, decided the only way Cleveland would ever get a World Series was in a movie. Quoting now from a sports-illustrated oral history of the movie, which will be heavily featured throughout the rest of this episode, Ward said, quote, After that things went into a decline in Cleveland. Just grim, awful, hopeless years. I thought the only way the Indians will ever win anything in my lifetime is if I make a movie where they do. And obviously, it has to be a comedy because no one would believe it as a drama, unquote. Ward, who had won the Oscar for writing The Sting in 1973, began writing the script in 1984 and shot the story around the studios, none of whom were interested in a comedy comedy baseball movie unless that comedy was set on a sandlot featuring a cast of adorable preteens. But then, Bull Durham was greenlit and cleaned up in the box office. And all of a sudden, baseball was very, very good to Hollywood. Ward actually started pre-production on Major League before Bull Durham became a hit because he managed to convince a small production company called Morgan Creek to kick a gamble on the film. And with the success of Bull Durham, Paramount signed on to be the studio backers of the movie. When casting began, Morgan Creek suggested Tom Berenger and Charlie Sheen for the lead roles. The two would work together in Platoon the year before and were considered reliable box office. So Behringer was cast as Jake Taylor, a wasp up catcher at the tail end of a lackluster baseball career, and Charlie Sheen as a young pitcher just starting out in a mentor-mentee kind of relationship. Very wholesome. Behringer was on a string of lauded hit movies, including Platoon and Charlie Sheen, was just entering peak Charlie Sheen. A lot of the youngs out there only know Sheen from his tiger blood era, but back in the 1980s, Charlie was a whole thing. Along with his dad Martin and brother Emilio, Charlie was very much Hollywood royalty. And he was landing meaty roles like Platoon and Wall Street, building himself a solid reputation for comedy, which Major League helped kickstart. Had Charlie been a bit less, well, if he'd been a bit less Charlie Sheen, he could have had the career of Tom Cruise without all the weird L. Ron Hubbard bullshit. Or, I don't know, seeing how Charlie turned out, maybe Scientology would have helped. Either way, having Charlie play the good-looking bad boy in the movie wasn't all that far off from Charlie's actual persona. It kind of fit like a catcher's mitt. Really, Really, Dave? Dave. The third big name in the movie wasn't even a big name when he landed the role. Who are you? Wesley Snipes. Snipes had been cast in a few movies and was working in television. But here is a what-the-hell fun fact, if you're interested in one, in another timeline Wesley Snipes could have been Geordie LaForge on Star Trek The Next Generation. Wait a minute, it's the future. all the phaser guns. When he was cast as Willie Mays Hayes in Major League, he was a relative unknown, but the movie would help vault him into his star status to the point that when the lamentable sequels came around, Snipes was too big of a deal to, appear to, to deign to appear in them, which, as we now know, was the right choice and all the cast should have made it. The other big name wasn't a big name in Hollywood, But he was a big name in baseball, and for my money, the standout performance in the movie. Without him, the movie wouldn't have been nearly as funny. One, Bob Euchre. More from Sports Illustrated. Quote, the last piece of the puzzle was the radio announcer. I wanted it to be funny, eccentric, a bit profane at times. And having seen Bob Euchre on the light beer commercials, I thought he was perfect. You know, one of the best things about being an ex-big leaguer is getting freebies to the game. Call the front office. Bingo. And once these fans recognize me, I probably won't even have to pay for my light beer from Miller. Down the clock. <laughs> I love them. These fans know I drink light because it's less filling and it tastes great. Good seats, huh? You're in the wrong seat, buddy. Come on. Oh, I must be in the front Come row. On. Light beer from Miller. Everything you always wanted in a beer and less. <laughs> Good seats, hey, buddy? He missed the tag. He missed the tag. I didn't even know at the time that he was announcing for the Brewers. Euchre told Sports Illustrated in the same story, they told me to do whatever you want. You don't have to follow the script. They just said, the Indians are getting their asses kicked every day. Have fun with it. So I did. My stuff was funny." Unquote. Bring up Haywood who leads the league in most offensive categories, including nose hair. (laughs) When this guy sneezes, he looks like a party favor. Euchre was, and indeed is, a well-loved figure in baseball with a long history in the game. Quoting from his Wikipedia page, quote, After signing with his hometown Milwaukee Braves in 1956, he spent several years in the minor leagues with very affiliate clubs before making his major league debut in 1962. As a below average major league catcher, he played for three different teams over six seasons and retired from playing in 1967. After retiring, Euchre started a broadcasting career and has served as the play-by-play announcer for the Milwaukee Brewers radio broadcast since 1971. Euchre became known for his self-deprecating wit and became a regular fixture on late-night talk shows in the 1970s and 80s, facetiously dubbed Mr. Baseball by TV talk show host Johnny Carson, unquote. Having Euchre do the play-by-play for the games did something no other baseball movie did. It made you feel like the games you were watching on the screen were the games you were watching in the stadium. I'm not a baseball fan, but if I were, having Harry Doyle tell it like it is would would make watching a shitty team fun. And that's exactly what he did in Major League. Rounding out the team with a hard bitten coach, a pitcher whose fading arm was helped along by various substances. What's that shit on your chest? Crisco. Bardol. Bad yourself. Any one of them will give you another two to three inches drop on your curveball. Of course, if the umps are watching me close, I just rub a little jalapeno inside my nose, get it running, and if I need to load the ball up a little, just. I my nose. You put snot on the ball? I haven't got an arm like yours. I got to put anything on it I can find. Someday you will too. A uh, prima donna played by Corbin Burnson, who deserves his own character sketch but I'm already running along and I wanted to make sure to get some time to talk about Pedro Serrano. Who is that? Must be Serrano. Infected from Cuba. He wanted religious freedom. What's his religion? Voodoo. David Ward said in the Sports Illustrated piece, quote, Dennis Haysbert's Serrano character was based on the Alu brothers and some Latin ball players who were known to be a little bit superstitious, unquote. And if that sounds a little problematic, it is. The character is one of the funniest in the movie and provides some great setup for comedy, but Dennis Haysbert is not Cuban, and voodoo, or rather voodan, is an actual religion. So over the years, it's Got a little heat for cultural appropriation which it totally is. This is an 80s movie so some of the beats and jokes won't be a hit for modern audiences. Speaking of that we got to talk about the protagonist Margaret Witten who played a brief but notable career in Hollywood in the 1980s played the team's new owner Rachel Phelps. Here's a list of the players we'll be inviting to camp. I never heard of half of these guys, and the ones I do know are way past the prime. Most of these guys never had a prime. The facts are we lost our two best players to free agency. We haven't won a pennant in over 35 years. We haven't placed higher than fourth in the last 15. Obviously, it's time for some changes. This guy here is dead. Cross him off, then. The character is a ex-Vegas showgirl who married the team's owner and inherited it upon his death. She hates living in Cleveland and has a plan to move the team to Miami, where they will build her a new stadium and allow her to live a life of Miami luxury. Witten saw the character as a combination of Marge Schott and George Steinbrenner, which probably doesn't mean a lot for to people today. Steinbrenner was the longtime owner of the Yankees. The young people might know him best from Seinfeld reruns, as he was voiced by Larry David and Marge Schott. Well, Marge Schott was the owner of the Cincinnati Reds from 1984 to 1999 and Marge Schott had interesting ideas to say the least from her Wikipedia page. Quote, she was banned from managing the team by the MLB in 1993. Due to racist comments, and again from 1996 through 1998, due to statements in support of German domestic policies of Nazi party leader Adolf Hitler, among other controversies over her beliefs. Shortly afterwards, she uh, sold the majority share in the team, unquote. Phelps' character never espoused any fascist ideology in the movie, but she was not portrayed as lovable. She was very much an archetype of the 80s called a power bitch, meaning she was intelligent, ambitious, and ruthless. You know, stuff that would be admirable if she were only a man. It, it was the 80s. Thing is, Phelps knew her shit, and she knew baseball. And she knew how to work a contract to her advantages. And it was only because she was a woman that she was despised for these traits. The movie had to have a villain, and Rachel Phelps was a good one, as far as those things go. Still, what have I told you maybe Rachel Phelps wasn't evil after all? A lot of people don't know that the movie had an alternate ending. So you'd tell the team. Hopefully, getting them mad enough so they'd knock themselves out trying to prove they belonged in this league. I think it worked. You're trying to make me believe that you wanted us to win all along? Mm -hmm. Bull. What about the plane, the bus, the bad hotels? We were broke. We couldn't afford anything better. Donald left the team nearly bankrupt. If we'd had another losing season, I would have had to sell this team. I knew we couldn't win with the players we had, so I decided to get new players and see how they'd do with the proper motivation. David Ward said in Sports Illustrated, quote, Originally, Major League had a different ending. I was trying so hard to be clever. Adding a little twist at the end where the owner, this person who you think has been trying to sabotage the team, actually turns out to have been the architect of the team's success. When we tested it, audiences were pissed. They enjoyed hating her, unquote. Again, it was the 80s. And I don't really buy the story, none of the scenes leading up to the revelation support this ending, and Ward said elsewhere that leaving the twist ending in would require large amounts of reshoots because they had shot Rachel Phelps as an utter stone-cold, hard-hearted businesswoman, and he didn't have the budget to reshoot them. I tend to believe the idea of the twist ending was never really on the table, and frankly, as much as I find the portrayal of Phelps unpleasant, it made a better movie to play it the way she did. The plot of the movie? Not complicated. It's bad news bears. But in the major leagues, lovable losers pull it together, complete with the obligatory 80s montage, and eventually face off against their rivals the Yankees to play for the World Series. Spoiler alert. They, uh, they win. It's a whole feel-good thing. There is a romantic B story between Behringer's Jake and his ex played by Renee Russo. It was her first movie role, and good God, Renee Russo is so achingly beautiful in this movie. I've always had a crush on Renee, but she's so young. She'd just come off her modeling career. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, just like I'm never going to be in baseball, I'm never going to be Renee Russo's boyfriend. And uh, seriously, the love story wasn't that all that relevant to the movie. It's there because you had to have one for, you know, for the ladies. I guess it paid off for them. I don't know these things. I don't think that a lot of women watch Major League. The film had a budget of $11 million and made $75 million in theaters and went on to be a huge moneymaker in the home video market. It was and probably is a dude movie go-to. Something you could put on with beers and with the guys and have a good time shouting the lines. Another thing that 80s movies were so very good at. And even today, the movie's highly quotable. Given even the vaguest reference to baseball, you can slip it in. Just a bit outside. He tried the corner and missed. Into almost any fail situation and you will have learned the obligatory chuckles and dude high fives. The movie is considered one of the greatest baseball movies of all time. The MLB puts it at number 10 on their top 25 and says of it, quote, this is absolutely the movie that every baseball player you know puts at number one, unquote. Why? Because the movie's a love letter to baseball. Admittedly, a funny love letter to baseball. And a letter written by a fan for the fans. And it came as baseball was changing from the national pastime into the big business it is today. The Lindy Newsletter talks about the state of baseball today. Quote, do you watch baseball? Probably not. The average age of televised baseball viewers, 57 in the World Series, have been dropping for 20 years. About 68.5 million fans attended major league games during the 2019 regular season, down from a peak of nearly 80 million in 2007. There was a 12% decline in household viewers between 2019 and 2021, unquote. Football had already began its rise to be the number one sport by the 1970s and by the mid-1980s, the owners of the teams, baseball teams, were looking to maximize their profits and didn't give much of a shit about the fan. The Rachel Phelps character was a stand-in for pretty much all the Major League team owners in her Machiavellian ambitions to shuffle the team's hometown for bigger stadiums and bigger paydays. Thisgameisgreat.com puts it this way about what happened to baseball in the following years. Quote, Part of the problem lay with selfish owners who, unlike their counterparts and in the other pro leagues, behaved as if their motto was none for all and all for me. They stiff-armed each other on revenue sharing and slammed their fist on city hall podiums demanding new publicly funded ballparks for their teams, typically using St. Petersburg as leverage. Such greedy theatrics only fueled the growing abyss between so-called big market and small market teams. That was really more about owners with big pockets and small pockets. Such pockets got deeper, depending on who had the glitzy new ballparks of yesteryear and the rich revenue streams that came along with them, unquote. Then came the steroid-induced home-run fever, where a juiced-up hitters slammed the homers out of the park every fucking game, which fans ate up until even they were like, uh... You're on steroids, aren't you? And all of a sudden, those big homers weren't great baseball. They were just better batting through chemistry. Ken Burns said in 1993, as quoted in the Christian Science Monitor, speaking about his baseball documentary, quote, The emotional content, that's what makes it stick, Burns said. Baseball, he explains, is a story rich in emotion, tradition, and mythology, and of course, corruption and scandal. The game is a mirror of who who we've been and who we've become, Burns says. It's a precise reflection of an age. For instance, the greed of the 1980s, and at the same time, we want it to be morally what we'd like to be, the good old days, unquote. Major League was a movie about the glory days of baseball in its waning days. It gives the audience a funny but emotional ride that reminds them of what they love about baseball. Compare Major League with, say, 2011's Moneyball, which is about baseball today. That's not to say Moneyball isn't a good movie. It is, but it is everything that is baseball today. Because baseball movies aren't really about baseball; they're about America, an America that doesn't exist anymore. Baseball has been America's game because anyone could play it. I mean, well, not me, obviously, but most people could play it. The players weren't sculpted Adonises, in their they were just schlubby man with bad haircuts and beer bellies, and the less said about their mustaches, the better. The kids could watch the game and think maybe someday that can be me in a way that. You you don't with football. And grown men could watch the game and remember their childhoods dreaming of someday being the famous pro baseball player. Baseball was a hometown thing. It was your team, your guys playing. And even if your team sucked, you still loved them. Maybe you loved them because they did suck. And it was easy to love a baseball team. It's a lot harder to love a baseball corporation which is what it was becoming by the time Major League hit theaters and what it fully is today. There are still fans and people who love baseball, but the game isn't a metaphor for America anymore. Or, more accurately, it is an unpleasantly accurate metaphor for what America has become. That is it for the show this week, and we've done another What the Hell movie night. I admit these are filler shows, but... Sometimes it could be fun to just take it easy and let the topic carry the content. Speaking of filler, rate and review this show and realize that every, oh, pretty much filler. If you want, you can kick us a dollar so I can buy Gavin his very first baseball glove. Get this is up at patreon.com slash whatthehellpodcast. Now, do everything Jeremy tells you to do in the closing credits. Otherwise, he'll show up at the studio and tell me, Tank another play like you did today. I'm going to cut your nuts off and stuff them down your fucking throat. No, I'm kidding. He would never say that. He would just look at me with that disappointed look he gets whenever he to the show. So for me, Dave, well, I, uh, I spent some time in the Mudville Nine watching it from the bench. so, producer. You know, I took some lumps when the mighty case struck out. I don't understand. Gavin! Today. And all the fictional benchwarmers on this show, we want to say, put us in, coach. We're we're ready to play. I mean I mean not me. I I want to stay on the bench next to the beer. And we'll see you all next week. Anyone could understand the way I feel. Put me in, coach. I'm ready. what the hell were you thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions the show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings podcast network you can find more information on the show on their website whatthehellpodcast.com or on twitter at thehell underscore podcast or on facebook as whatthehellpodcast thanks for listening I have no ending for this so I take a small bow I want my MTV.